in association with the Museum of the Antiquities Project. This is Ancient Rome Refocused with your host, Rob Kane. History for the Brave. Welcome to episode 31. This podcast is titled Down and Out in Ancient Rome. Our featured guest today is Tristan Verbofen, writer, producer at the Story Engine podcast, Twilight Histories and the Science of Motivation. He is a lecturer at Bois de Boulogne College in Montreal, Canada. Down and Out in Ancient Rome is an original audio creation by Tristan. It is a street-level recon of the mean streets of Rome. Tristan is a storyteller. He told me about a visit that he made to Berlin. Upon being questioned by his daughter on the history of the Berlin Wall, he told her the story of World War II in the format of a fairy tale. Imagine a story of such breadth told in terms of legend. Down and out in ancient Rome sounds grittier. It is no film noir of the streets of Rome, no pretense of a detective novel, but it hints of a reconnaissance told with cold contempt for what the protagonist observes and what he must do to survive. We get to look over the shoulder of the protagonist and hear the sounds that echo up and down the streets of yesteryear. Stay tuned for the story. I don't think you want to miss it. And when you listen, watch your back. It seems in Rome, you have to be careful. But first on the show, we have the return of Matthew Lee Embleton. In episode 30, he gave a talk about the history of Latin. But today, he takes us on a journey on the origins of ruins and the Latin alphabet. But before we get started on that, I want to bring up something I saw on YouTube. It's from the TV series Loki from Walt Disney Studios. Loki in Norse mythology is a cunning trickster who has the ability to change shape. He is considered the companion of the gods Odin and Thor. Marvel Comics has given the persona over to the British actor Thomas Hiddleston, who portrays him in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Hiddleston has outstanding acting chops and is a fantastic Shakespearean actor. I first saw him in the 2012 BB series The Hollow Crowns about Henry IV and V. The camera, let's face it, the camera loves Hiddleston and he has the unique ability to be powerful and vulnerable same time. He plays Loki with unrestrained enthusiasm, with, with just a hint of menace. He can charm and threaten at a drop of a hat, and still you like the guy. Loki, the TV series, is heavy on the time travel plotline. In the series, Loki finds himself trying to correct the timeline that he's inadvertently caused under the supervision of Mobius as played by actor Owen Wilson. 
they both wind up in the ancient city of Pompeii. Now, this scene only lasts about five or six minutes, but this is my favorite part of the show. Until this entire town is wiped off the face of this planet. Imagine all that volcanic ash. I know we don't want to get too giddy. Oh, come on. It's cool. No, it is cool, but it's just, it's just not in good taste because of... Well, they're all going to die anyway. I know. Now, listen, I'm going to watch the Tempad for any variance energy. The scene begins with Loki and Mobius, an agent of the Time Variance Authority, discussing tactics in trying to prevent future events from heading in an alternate direction from which they were intended. In other words, time is a tree, and unusual or variant actions can sprout a new branch. Well, it's hard enough looking after one timeline. Trying to correct several can be difficult. Loki runs into the street, and after releasing a cage of animals from captivity, he makes the following speech in Latin. My name is Loki. We are agents of the Time Variance Authority. I bring you all dark tidings. All of you. Moritori estis. You are all about to die. Iste mons, ignes, pastos per saecola in vos est euobiturus. The volcano is about to erupt. Stio haec esse vera, quod ego de futuris adveni. I would know, because I am from the future. We are from the future, right? What is the TVA? I mean, it's from the future. It sounds from the future. Pretty futury. Note. All the townspeople look at him like he's crazy. Well, wouldn't you? The slave carrying a basket looks at him with shock, then shows a face that says, you're wasting my time. It is a subtle reaction on the part of the actor, but it is real. The truth is, the slave has no time. Neither does his friends, nor the town. Nobody has any time. <laughs> Of course, at the beginning it was violent, a cloud of gases, rock and ash rolled over the town killing everyone in its wake. But then, this is the part where you imagine ashes falling from the sky, slowly piling up like winter snow. The eruption took place in 79 AD. More than 1,000 people are thought to have died. At least, that's the best guess. The only written account, an eyewitness account, was penned by Pliny the Younger 
to the historian Tacitus. Loki's speech reminded me of walking up Chicago Avenue and seeing the same soothsayers warn about the end of the world. Of course, I didn't pay attention. Some people called them crazy people. Never had I wondered whether there was a modicum of truth in their warning. But maybe I should. All of us are chased by our own special endings, a death that either comes quickly or late. I found a snippet where Hiddleston on a talk show talks about his educational background and the joy of reading a text in the original language. You went to Cambridge University. Yes, I did, yeah. And you studied uh, classics. That was your focus. What do you do with the classics degree other than like, hey, you want to know about Ovid's Metamorphosis? Because I translated it. I can tell you about it. Yeah. Yeah. Following Daphne. Yeah. What, what um, did you, what, what honestly, was your plan? Honestly, I, I didn't know. I think I'd, I'd always... I've discovered strangely that I was good at it. It was one of the first things at school I found I was good at, you know, mm -hmm. a terrible at math, terrible at science. And then I started learning Latin declensions and I was like, I'm, I know the answer to that. Another sure, pool la, pool la, pool Right, exactly. Pool la, pool yeah, That's exactly, exactly it. And, yeah. uh, and then I and then I've actually became really interested in it. I think those, the stories are so great. The genu I genuinely loved reading the Odyssey and the Iliad and um, and all the, and Plato in the original Greek. It's kind of, it's like reading, wow, hold on. <laughs> when, you, when people read it in not in the original Greek, you go, you're not really getting it. You're not, you just don't get the, <laughs> is it really? Something in Yeah. It. No, it's, it's a bit like, I suppose, you know, the French talk about, um, they wish they could read, read Shakespeare in the, in, they read translations of Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. And they, and, and they have to work their English up to a point where they can read Shakespeare in English. And it's a bit like, you know, when you read stuff in, in, in Latin and Greek, it's a weird um, foundation in language. I've always been quite grateful because I, there's never, if there's a word I don't understand, it usually comes from a, a Latin or Greek root, so I sort of know what it means. I have heard it described that um, reading a great work of art, in, not in the original language, reading a translation, is like kissing a woman through a veil. Who wants to do that? <laughs> me, not me. Not me. Since we're discussing languages, let's bring in Matthew Lee Embleton. Matthew? The origins of runes and the Latin alphabet. The meaning of the word rune comes from the Germanic root rune, meaning secret or whisper. Similar versions of this word are also found in Old Irish Gaelic, Welsh, Old English, Anglo-Saxon, Baltic languages such as Lithuanian and also Finnish with such meanings as intention, miracle, mystery, poem, scratched letter, secret, secret writing, speech, to carve, to speak and whisper, which collectively suggest a common connection over a broad spectrum of meaning reaching far back into time. The first known account of the use of runes as a means of divination is attributed to Publius Cornelius Tacitus in his work De Origine et Situ Germanorum on the origin and situation of the Germanic people of around 98 CE. Auspicia sortesque ut qui maxime observant sortium consuetudo simplex virgam frugiferae 
arbori decisam in surculos, amputant eos quae notis quebustam discretos, supercandidam vestem temere ac fortuito spargunt. They attached the highest importance to the taking of auspices and casting lots. Their usual procedure with the lot is simple. They cut off a branch from a nut-bearing tree and slice it into strips. These they mark with different signs and throw them at random onto a white cloth. While it gives no specific description of the signs or symbols used, the description of the process of casting lots makes it probable that the symbols being used were an early form of runes. During the Roman Imperial period, 1st century BCE to 5th century CE, Germanic people would have had contact with the Roman Empire through trade and also by serving as mercenaries in the Roman army. They would have come into contact with the adopted writing systems from old Italic alphabets, including Venetic, East Raetic, West Raetic, Camunic, Lepontic and Etruscan. The fact that these alphabets share so many common features makes it hard to determine whether one specific alphabet was the point of origin or a combination of them. Either way, this can be said to be the historical fork in the road where runic alphabets and the Latin alphabet began their development and went their separate ways. The word alphabet itself comes from the Greek alpha, beta, the first two letters in the sequence. Likewise, the runic alphabets are also referred to as futharks in the same way because of the first six letters. To find out more about my work, visit www.matthewleeembleton.co.uk Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoy the rest of the podcast. Matthew Lee Embleton will be a featured guest on episode 32 of Ancient Rome Focused. Matthew can regale you with story between chopping wood with a Viking's axe. He will compose with lyre and drum and drop into Latin, making it sound poetic and young. He makes it sound easy. And if you're interested in who's who in the Viking Age, check out his website. But now, let's enter the world of the Story Engine podcast. Hi, I'm Tristan Verboth. I think about time travel a lot. I mean, it's a complicated and hazardous business. Not just the danger of altering the fabric of time and space contingency, or the fear of being lost in an alternate universe. I'm talking about what happens when you get there on a good day. Do you have what it takes to survive in the chrono system you are visiting? That is one of the many things we explore at the Twilight Histories. And it's a special thrill to be collaborating with Ancient Rome Refocused. It was one of the inspirations to create my first show, the Story Engine Podcast, where I explore the forever war between Rome and Carthage. And now, the Twilight Histories, where listeners delve into the multiverse that doesn't always go as planned. It has all come full circle, as I present our latest episode, down and out in ancient Rome. Every day starts the same way here in Rome. First thing in the morning, lined up at the swanky domus, stuccoed ceilings and lush frescoes of dainty garden motifs. 
motifs. At least you're out of the late summer sun that's already beating down this early in the morning. It's Don Carbo's command center. It's the fate of every free man groveling to the big man. It's tedious, it's humiliating for all concerned, but everybody has a job to do. And they're the lucky ones. Here in Rome, the difference is paper thin. You are only as free as your freedom is useful. And so you watch the man ahead of you in line. Actually, you know the man ahead of you in line. It's the Fuller from Argiletum. He goes through the motions, and his voice carries into the lull. All I know is those pups are coming up short. He holds his hands before him in exasperation. I ask him what's going on. He won't talk. Dom Carbo never says much. His job is to keep his affairs in order, to listen, to peel away the layers, to keep everyone in his house fed and loyal. It's the fourth day in a row with your hand out and stooping to the big guys worth a denarius, but you can tell by the bald man's look that you better make yourself useful soon or you will be made useful. Let me know what you can do for me. A week ago, you signed up to attend the gladiator games at the Colosseum, but instead you found yourself plopped in the forum of ancient Rome, broke and hungry. But in that respect, you started your day the same as pretty much everyone in Subura, and you did what any free Roman does. You quickly became a client when in Rome. You're acutely aware of the Veneletti that has been following you since you got here. That lecherous face keeps popping up in the crowd. It's only a matter of time before you get snatched up. You gotta get into a good house. Protection. The bald guy motions you as the fuller leaves, so you do your thing. Gracious master, humble servant, great honor. He gets it. And from his chair, Don Carbo nods his approval, graciously moving you along. But the message is clear. You've got a job. Bring the big guy something he can use. And soon, like today. The alternative is all around you. Slaves living and working where they sleep in every nook and cranny of the city. Uh, once you go there, you never come back. You step out into the noise, the smells, bodies pushing and shoving. The small square in front is kept clear by Carbo's goons. His wool merchant is on one side, his potter is on the other, and the street crawls by. Alleys as wide as three men, but crammed by many more. It's a stubborn trickle lit by the dim slit of Mediterranean sky between towering tenements. These days, a denarius will get you some street food and a foul insulet in the fifth story. Barely room to curl up on the floor with a piss pot. You're a nobody in this crowded town, and one of many by the looks of it. 
just a face in the crowd, but that's what makes you the perfect tail. You know what you need to do. Find out who's moving in on Carbo's business. Keeping a fuller in your sights, you weave through the frenzy. You've gotten to know the streets the last few days, slipping past borders under enormous sacks, and life comes in by snippets, men in tunics, women's heads wrapped in cloth, beggars, merchants, jugglers, thieves, children everywhere. Over your shoulder, you keep catching a glimpse of the Venaletti. Just keep moving, disappear into the tempo. Looking into the doorways as you pass, artisans in cramped arches, students with tablets, weavers and potters, butchers and bakers. The fuller and his servant take a turn up the busy alley. They come out on Porto Esquilina to a wider street, harder to keep out of sight. This neighborhood, it's quieter. It's got homes and shops, construction zones, and there's a new bath going up. Scores of slaves on scaffolding divas with their retinue of porters and attendants and just huddles lurking about. It widens again to a vast warehouse marked Fulonica. Great jugs are emptied into ammonia baths where women and children trudge barefoot in white cloth their rags and sleep rolls in dark corners, and a shirtless man stirs the swill with a stick to the workers' sad song. Watching from a seat at the taberna across, you see porters coming and going under great bundles. One thing about the Romans is they talk often and constantly. By the time you've finished your bread, olive oil, and garum, you've got the latest gossip, too. Publius Galba is making a move in the neighborhood. And the new baths will bring a lot of business. And that baker at the corner, the Aurelian, he's cheating his customers. And those girls working in the insulae by the temple are causing a lot of traffic. Oh, it's time to move. Some young men are hauling the large jugs on their backs and you follow one headed up the hill to Esquiline. This time, the Veneletti doesn't follow. 
The boy makes a lot of stops, squatting down each time while shopkeepers empty their pots. Until a public toilet at the end of the lane. The row of keyhole slits in a horseshoe where an elderly one-legged man charges a quadrant a visit. The boy approaches for the morning's takings, but he's stopped by a couple of stocky types. Swarthy men, foreign, goons by the look of it. You step back, and from around the corner you watch as they torment the child pouring out his jugs on the stones and sending him on his way. The two men laugh as the boy shuffles off, and then they turn their aggression towards the old man. Heavy set, bulked up brutes, probably gladiators, or definitely goons. They head up the main road moving slowly, stopping to lean on local merchants and chat up young girls. Then they settle in front of a large domus, joining the other thugs standing by the door. Who lives in that one? You ask a local fruit seller. Publius Galba, he answers. By now it's mid-afternoon and already the waft of food drifts through the air. You take a different route back, a shortcut, avoiding the Venaletti. You cut through some passageways, courtyards where stew is boiling and alleyway baths where a semis will get you a stool and a cup by a trickling spout and past the archways where boys and girls wait for customers behind worn flaps. And through the shuttered market street now filled with maidens promenading past groups of young men. The square in front of the domus is quiet, only flamba out front. Carbo and his men are at the Therme Titanie for their bath. The lanky one, Daxias, is waiting out front of the baths. He lets you through, but you have to strip down to a loincloth, sending you into a steamy cavern. The other heavies are training naked in the front rooms. Carbo is lounging out, his slave boy tenderizing his shoulders. His hand dangles over a bowl of grapes. You can see his legionnaire tattoo on his 
oily, glazed skin. He stops the young poet as you step into the haze. With a flick of his fingers, he draws you closer, tilting his head to hear your message. The bald man stands within earshot. As you tell him about the Fuller, the collection boys, his hand drifts over to pluck a grape. And you tell him about the thugs and how they harassed the boy, and when you tell him how you followed them up through Argiletum to Galba's house, he pops the grape suddenly in his mouth. He motions to the bald man and whispers in his ear, and you are ushered away. You take your time to enjoy the baths, first a relaxing wade in a warm pool, and then the hot steam of a sweaty, dark chamber, followed by an attendant lathering and scraping, and by the end of it you are limber and fresh having removed the layer of urban filth from your skin. Outside, the streets dwell in the cool late afternoon shade. The bald man is looking at you from the huddle of Carbo's tufts. He turns his head as you step out. Two of them nod take a deep breath. Throwing their shoulders back, they march off. And Daxius follows the bald man as he approaches you. Taking your wrist, he slaps two denarius coin into your palm. Darius chuckles, pointing his chin to the two thick goons who just left. You know what they're gonna do to them? You shrug, and he shows you a wrestling move. One where he takes a man by the neck and twists his arm behind his back and then motions as if he's slamming his face into his knee, laughing. He slaps you on the back. We are getting ready for the games, he says. Tryon just got back from Dacha. Thousands of slaves and plunder. Gotta be more than a hundred days of games. He sits down next to you on the steps. I am Retiarus, the fisherman. I fight with a net and a spear. Those two, Murmillo, they are sea monsters. They stab him with the sword. As the gladiator goes deeper into the different ways that he can humiliate an opponent, you notice the Veneletti spying you from across the square. And Daxius sees the look on your face as you catch his eye. That slaver, you say. He's been following me for days. You barely finish your sentence and Daxius is on his feet, storming across the road and calling him out. You looking at something, He tries to run away, but Daxius catches him by his neck and throws him into the middle of the street. And the crowd starts forming around them. You want something better? He kicks him to the ground. That belongs to Dom Carbo, you hear me, Mastija? 
This time he grabs him in a headlock and cheers and jeers at the crowd. And the more he squirms helplessly, the more the crowd starts to chant. Daxius chokes him till the limp body flops to the floor. He calmly returns to his post, pretending to ignore the chants. And you stand there watching the poor soul pick himself up and drag himself away. Till you see the bald man standing next to you looking on. He turns to you smiling. You're, You're turning, turning into, into quite, quite the, the Roman, Roman aren't you? He chuckles. Quite the Roman indeed. This concludes episode 31. Special thanks to Late Night with Stephen Colbert, Disney Plus, and the Marvel Cinematic Universe. See you next time on Ancient Rome Refocused.